This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com. Our children are our future. To help them thrive, parents must ensure that we teach them how to think. We must guide them to unleash their full potential. We must show them a world that is full of hope and opportunities for everyone so that they can develop their gifts. Lucy LeBon is a mindset and personal development coach who discusses the role of the subconscious mind in conditioning when it comes to learning and decision-making. She's our guest for this part of today's show, and she feels that we all have unlimited resources of power within us. But since we're not taught about the power of the mind by the time we reach adulthood, these unlimited resources are dormant and may never be used. But when a child is born, the subconscious mind is wide open, so everything the child hears, sees, tastes, smells, and touches is planted in their subconscious mind. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Lucy LeBlanc about the conscious and unconscious mind and what parents can do to condition their children for success. We'll also talk about some common parental errors, what we can do to recondition our own mind, and a lot more. Today's show is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union, which is proud to serve the Armed Forces veterans and their families. And if you're a member of the Armed Forces or Department of Defense, they would be proud to serve you, too. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Armin Brunt, and it all starts when positive parenting continues right after this. Well, I finally did it. I opened a 401k. What? Why? Just wait for the inheritance. We've definitely got a rich uncle somewhere. We're one call away from the winner's circle at the Derby, dinners with multiple forks, a vacation home in the country, using summer as a verb. You don't actually think that, do you? When it comes to financial stability, don't get left behind. Get tools and tips for saving at feedthepig.org. This message brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Lucy LeBlanc, who's the author of Ordinary Parents Raising Extraordinary Children, a parental guide to unlocking your child's inner strength to full self-expression. Lucy, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on the show. How are you? I'm all right. All right. Thank you for asking. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Uh, so let's talk about the extraordinary children and ordinary parents. I think that that's something that probably a lot of a lot of parents worry about is if if you know most of us are ordinary and uh, how, so how can we set our sights on on raising extraordinary children if we ourselves are not perhaps extraordinary okay so um, the thing about the human race is that we when we are born we are perfect we have a perfect dna but the sad thing is the society and the conformity uh, kind of way um, spoils us we, as we get older, we tend to forget our uh, possibility to achieve greater success. And also the fact that when the children enter the school system, um, we're, they're kind of forced to uh, become uh, like a little robot. They are follow uh, the crowd, they follow the rules, 
they are required to sit for long hours, and this kind of take away their self-expression. They cannot express themselves freely. So I would think that sometimes the school system can be too vigorous for the children or too strict. And uh, imagination is a great tool for us to use. This is how we create. But if the children daydream throughout the day and they become, uh, they get punished because of that, we tend to stop dreaming. And this faculty is like a muscle. So if we stop using it, it will vanish eventually. And and you think that that's something that the, the process of, of limiting children in that way, does that start in schools or do parents do it as well? Because there there are just to get through life without getting killed by, by some accident or some horrible thing. There are a lot of rules you need to follow about not running into the street, about not putting your hand on a hot burner, or a, you know, about all different kinds of, of safety issues. But that that can limit your possibilities as well. Absolutely uh, agree on that. But we were raised the same way than we are raising our children, so we tend to repeat the same same thing. And I'm not saying that the school is wrong, but you have a bunch of children in a classroom. Some kids are very active, others are more intellectual. Some, the thing is we put them all together, and I think if we would have some school like uh, in Europe, in Denmark, for example, children are uh, learned through play. They spend a lot of hours outside uh, spending their energy, climbing trees, uh, gardening. They teach them uh, nature uh, skills, like, for example, planting vegetables, cooking. And, of course, school is crucial because school is sacred. I totally uh, agree that we all need to be educated. But I think we don't have to follow the same pattern because we are all different. We are all unique. And if we would have more school that would accommodate the type of character that your child has, for example, if your child has attention deficit, maybe we should put them in a class like in Denmark. They, they should be going outside, spending time playing outside and burning their energy rather than sending them to the doctor and prescribing them medication to calm them down. It's kind of uh, robbing them from their freedom. If they cannot express themselves, where are we going? So sure. that's my concern about the school today. You know, you mentioned Denmark. I was actually just going to ask you, because we can tell from your accent that I'm guessing France. Uh, are, are the schools different noticeably in different countries? Absolutely. In France, actually, I'm French-Canadian, but I've read a lot about education, and I have family in Europe. All the school in Europe and, uh, for example, Denmark, Sweden, they really uh, don't force the kids to be sitting for many hours at a time. Actually, they, they spend so much time outside, and they do teach uh, about outside and life skill in nature and also they teach a lot of languages. And a lot of the school in Denmark don't have homework. So once they get out of school after the eight or nine hours of schooling, these kids are free to go outside and play and do different things. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that we should learn at 
everybody should learn at their own pace. Some children have uh, slower learning abilities, and we should at this time teach them different skills if they are not too intellectual, because there is all sorts of things that we is lacking in our school system. For example, I strongly believe they should teach about nutrition, they should teach about cooking, how to grow vegetables, how to sustain yourself if you have to, and um, other things like mm -hmm. uh, public speaking, um, how to keep yeah. a checkbook, <laughs> and all those little simple things that we have to sometimes learn them on the hard way. Yeah. And um, these are things that we're going to have to use every single day, so might as well teach these kids uh, those skills. And uh, also, if they show a lot of interest, open up more possibility in school rather than all the same curriculum, because we can learn with all sorts of tools. And um, I think that's why oftentimes when we send our children to school, eventually they become a little bit... Uh, uh, they lose their ability because they are being told no so many times. And uh, so we tend to shut ourselves down, and eventually all of our God-given gifts that we all have, they tend to disappear and go dormant. So what do we have to do then as, as parents, as again, to get back to the title, the, uh, the ordinary parents? How are we going to get the schools to change? I mean, that, that's a big that's a big job. I, I could see with some private schools it's going to be a little easier because they're smaller, they're more nimble, they can change, and they they tend to have. Uh, I should know. I don't want to make blanket statements because I'll get in trouble for that. But uh, I think they just they tend to have a higher level of education, and they're smaller class sizes, so the teachers can pay more attention. But so if you, if you have a kid who's going to a public school, how can you possibly? get them to offer classes in in cooking and public speaking and, and things like that that I think are in nutrition and survival skills, which are wonderful ideas, but it seems like they're already so pressed to get everything else done. So how do, exactly. how do, we, how do we tell them? That's the pressing thing here. It's, uh, um, the first teacher of a child is their parents, the father and the mother, or if they're single yeah, parents, the right. mother or the father. And um, it is mandatory for the parents to not rely 100% to, with the school system to teach them certain things. And, um, for example, in order to become outstanding at certain skill or really achieve a certain level of success, it's not by following conformity and following the crowd. It's by learning how the mind works, because it is in the subconscious mind that all of our gifts are residing. And it is, we call this a powerhouse. But if you, you I don't know where you went to school, but they never mentioned those tools in school. And uh, so if they would teach the power of the mind in school, and if it would be um, from preschool on to university, life would be totally different in this uh, planet because we would know who we are. And when we know who we are, we can have mm -hmm. access of those, to those great uh, power tools, those magical tools, yeah. which is the perception, the reason, the memory, the intuition, the willpower, and the imagination. 
Okay, so and, let's let's get into some of those things. Give us a, a very quickly. We only have about a half a minute left in this part of the show, but and then we'll take a break and then we'll come back. But just so so say those things again. Those, those elements. The creative faculties they are called, uh, or emotional faculties, and they reside in the subconscious mind. They are the perception, the willpower, the memory, the intuition, the imagination, and the reasoning factor. Okay. All right. I'm talking with Lucie Leblanc, who is the author of Ordinary Parents Raising Extraordinary Children, A Parental Guide to Unlocking Your Child's Inner Strength to Full Self-Expression. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will be talking about the creative faculties and a lot more with Lucy. I'm Armin Brat. You're listening to Positive Parenting. Most of my family, they never graduated high school, so I'm trying to break that barrier. My daughter, Brooklyn, was also a motivation for me to go back to school. Every day after work, went straight to school, and it paid off. At age 26, Kareem finished his high school diploma. I could not have done it alone. I see the future is really bright for me. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brad. If you're just joining us, talking with Lucy Leblanc, the author of Ordinary Parents Raising Extraordinary Children. And you were just telling us about the creative faculties that uh, we as parents can help our kids that are going to help us really get the kids program for, for extraordinary success, as the title indicates. So l- let's talk about, and I don't think that we're going to be able to get to all of them, but let me just start with perception, because I think that it, it seems silly, but that's such an important one that you, you things may not be actually the way you think they are, but the way you think they are and the way you respond to them is just as important. Of course, and the perception is uh, your point of view, and uh, we have to understand that in the perception, there's uh, the law of polarity is involved because there, the law of polarity states that uh, there is always two poles in any situation. So, for example, you have an in and an out, uh, up and a down, hot, cold, positive, negative. So, for example, I see a situation from my point of view. And uh, sometimes people tend to focus on the negative rather than the positive. And what we recommend when people are talking about their problem or their situation, we have to remember that there is also some positive out of this. And the positive is um, we have to switch our perception, uh, move around and look at the whole situation rather than the negative pole. And um, that's how we can maybe live in a more positive uh, energy or more positive word. Uh, if we look at the news or the, uh, the newspaper, there's so much bad news. But yeah. there is miracle happening every minute and every day of our lives. But it's hard to find those uh, empowering and uh, inspiring stories. We have to look for them. They are not presented to us. So I think we have the tendency and we are raised to be a little bit more living on the negative side because that's what we see in our world. And so as parents, though, do we make a, a point to point out the positive things that are going on in the world? I mean, how do we begin to 
get perception where it needs to be so that our kids can be different. That, that's, the, that's where I want you to go. Well, the thing is, children are so intelligent. They're genius. All of them usually operate on a genius level. So just e- explaining a child the situation, and if you, for example, if you are a parent, my children are older now, and I still teach them about the, the positive aspect of uh, mindset and uh, how the, the universe works. So as parents, if you really want your child to succeed and you know that uh, there's no such course in class uh, in the classroom to teach them how the mind works, it's it's your responsibility to learn it and to teach it to your children. And, you know, teaching the creative faculties to your child is as easy as teach them the basics of mathematics. It's very mm-hmm. simple, but it's difficult to teach something that you don't know. So well, the first step would be for the parents to really look into those uh, creative faculties, how the universal law works, and then just talk about it with your children and um, try to have some routine that really uh, emphasize about the creative faculties, what they are and what they do. Yeah. And, right. uh, Lucy, incur- g- give, me, yes? give me an example of a conversation that you might have with a child about this. And, and then I want to ask you after that what the benefits are of learning this. So, how, so I'm, a, I'm a 10-year-old boy. That's what my, my daughter tells me all the time is that I have the mind of a 10-year-old boy. So we'll just, <laughs> let's just go with that. Uh, I'm a 10-year-old boy, and I'm, I need to be instructed a little bit in, in perception or, or one of the other uh, faculties, whatever one you want. But just to, how, how would you begin a conversation? Okay, so let's uh, go with the imagination, for example. Okay. The imagination, kids use their imagination very easily, and they oftentimes escape in visualization, daydreaming. And this is one of the tools that really helps people create things, because imagination starts uh, the process of creation. It, we start with a small idea, and then if you uh, evolve the idea, eventually it becomes a bigger idea, and hopefully it will manifest in the physical world. So if you are a 10-year-old child and you, your child is always daydreaming or playing pretend, and the parents feel like, well, he's not really being realistic, just go along with it and encourage this because this is by visualization that we create things because we create by using our imagination um, and with constant repetition of the same idea, eventually it will become uh, in manifestation in our physical world. So just let your kid express themselves if they play pretend or whatever they do instead of trying to deviate and let make them change their mind or ideas because the reality of everything is you create your own reality. So when a parent or a teacher or whoever says you are not being realistic, perhaps it's the person doesn't believe, but if you really believe in yourself, you can accomplish anything. So that's what we want to let uh, our children believe, that they can do anything. 
do, do you really believe that, that we can accomplish anything? Because I, I, I think that that's something we say and that's nice to say and we don't want to tell our kids that they can't. But I think there's – it's unlikely that most kids are going to ever become president of the United States or president of Canada or, you know, or, or anything, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or that they're, they're going to discover a cure for cancer. I mean they should certainly try – but I wonder if, if by telling them you can do anything that we're setting them up for failure because they're going to find out pretty soon that they can't. Well, the things with our society is we, we have certain belief system, and those belief systems have been implemented by the human being. So we have an idea. For example, if you take a car. So it's a car. We all agree that it's a car. So then we accept it and we believe that the things that are rolling down the street are called car. And one thing that we tend to forget is that we have been created equal to our creator. And we have been equipped with creative faculties, which is our creative faculty, the perception and our, the six faculties. And due to our belief system or the society belief system, we don't believe that. But I do believe that you can accomplish anything because I've witnessed so many miracles in my life. And there is a lot of things that I've done in my life that uh, if I would have listened my environment, I would have given it up. But I was so stubborn and I just, my desire was so strong to accomplish it that I did. And, you know, Oftentimes, the greatest uh, personality of our world and the people that have, are the most productive in our society, they are uh, labeled stubborn because they believe in themselves. They believe in their idea. And that's how you come to realize your dream is by just following your intuition and believing in yourself mm-hmm. and being really stubborn and just close your mind to whatever people say or tell you to do. It's, uh, and, of course, when children are little, they have to f- listen to your par- their parents. But if we um, start early to tell them those things and let them express themselves a little bit more, eventually they will come to believe that. And everything is in what you believe you can do. Or you cannot do. Lucy, we only have a, a minute left. Give us, if you had to sum up this whole thing, what do we need to do as parents to raise extraordinary children? Okay, so if you are in a certain situation and you're not happy, your, your children are more likely going to be in the same situation than you. There's always one child in a family that can be resilient and they will go above and beyond what their parents have done. But if you are not happy today in your job or your life or your relationship, we pass everything down to our children. We look, uh, our children look like us physically, but they also think the same way we think. So if you don't believe your child cannot accomplish certain things, they are not going to believe in themselves. And um, so they will not do it. The thing is, if you want to have a better life for your children, you have to learn yourself how the mind works and pass this down to your child. And it's a very simple concept. It's, uh, it's as simple as two plus two equals four. So the parents have to put the time to, uh, to study and improve themselves, and then their children will 
follow on their footsteps because that's usually what people do. Their children follow their footsteps and mm-hmm. um, eventually yep. the, they are almost like as identical as their parents. Lucie Leblanc is the author of Ordinary Parents Raising Extraordinary Children, a parental guide to unlocking your child's inner strength to full self-expression. Lucie, thanks very much. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It was a very pleasant experience. I'm Paul George of the Indiana Pacers. When I was six, my days were spent playing basketball. When I was six, my dream was to make it to the NBA. When I was six, my mom had a stroke. So I want you to learn to spot a stroke fast. F-A-S-T. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911. I'm Paul George. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. And welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brunt, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, my 14-year-old high school freshman son is completely stressed out. In the past, he always looked forward to school, but for the past few weeks, he's been saying that he doesn't want to go. What can I do to help him? For some kids, going to school is no big deal. For plenty of others, like your son, it's incredibly stressful. There can be all sorts of reasons. Is he, or anyone else he knows, being bullied? Or is he worried that it could happen to him? Or, if it already did, that it'll happen again? Is he nervous about those annoying standardized tests or having trouble keeping up with all the high school homework load? Does he have friends? Is he spending too much time on social media? Is he getting worried about college? Yes, it's early for him as a freshman, but some kids, especially perfectionists, start getting prepared years in advance. Here are some things you can do to reduce school-related stress. Talk with him. Actually, this is mostly about you listening, being there, and being empathetic. Gently encourage him to explain what he's feeling. That's often enough to alleviate some of the stress. Ask whether there's anything you can do to help, but do not try to solve his problems for him. Wait for him to ask. The exceptions are bullying and test anxiety. It's a good idea to give the teacher a heads up and let him or her know to keep an eye on your son. Eliminate performance anxiety. As parents, we want our children to excel, and we tell them things like, I expect you to get straight A's this year. This puts a lot of pressure on kids, particularly if they're taking a subject they've never had or have had trouble with in the past. Good grades are nice, but is that A really worth putting him under even more stress than he already feels, or is it worth the hate he'll develop for a subject he might have actually enjoyed if you hadn't pushed so hard? Just ask him to do his best and offer to get him some tutoring or to help if you're able, if he needs it. Limit screen time. Too many parents pay too little attention to their children's non-academic screen usage. Kids sleep with their phones, spend breakfast catching up on all the social media updates they slept through, if they slept at all, spend every second of every passing period texting, and so on. Researcher Stephanie Donaldson-Pressman and her colleagues did a huge national study and found that 45 minutes per day is the most a child can spend before there are any apparent effects on their educational, emotional, and social development. 90 minutes of daily screen time can lower a child's GPA by one grade level. 
Again, we're talking about non-academic related screen time here. Limit extracurricular activities. In high school, your son's primary job is to be a good student, which includes keeping up with homework and other assignments. Anything else, whether it's sports or music lessons, could add more stress to the mix, unless, of course, it's a stress reliever. Give him plenty of breathing room. Keep the extracurriculars to a minimum until you and your son are confident that he's coping well with school. If so, start adding activities he's interested in one at a time. Create a learning environment. Kids who have firm rules about media, consistent homework routines, chores, a regular bedtime, and who use a calendar, digital or paper, to manage their schedule are less anxious and do better at school, says Donaldson Pressman. Don't be shy about calling in the professionals. If your son needs tutoring, help him find a tutor. If he's being bullied, notify the school administration. If he has fewer friends than usual or none at all, has lost interest in activities he used to love, is behaving strangely or is spending an excessive amount of time with his face in a device, consider meeting with a child psychologist. There's no shame in asking for help. Have you got a comment or question or suggestion for us here at Positive Parenting, something you think we ought to be doing or not doing? Let us know through our website, MrDad.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you. But you know what? There's a lot more of this one coming right up. So don't go anywhere. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Come on, smile. Oh, honey, he's still not smiling. Maybe he's not a smiler. Yeah, maybe he's just not a happy baby. Maybe he's just being a boy. Or maybe he's teething. Maybe it's just a phase. Maybe he has autism, and we can definitely do something to help. Maybe is all you need to find out more about autism. No big, joyful smiles by six months is one early sign. Learn the others at AutismSpeaks.org signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Every day, we witness people acting in rude and selfish ways. Whether they cut in front of us at Starbucks, snap at the overburdened waitress at Denny's, or take credit for their employee's project at work, jerks seem to be everywhere. And since these self-centered individuals are, by definition, unable and unwilling to address their objectionable behavior, there really isn't much we can do about them. Or is there? According to my guest for this part of today's show, a New York City-based psychologist who's seen more than his fair share of insolent behavior, we can actually do a lot. He argues that if we're brutally honest about our own behavior, we'll see that there is a lot we can change, because it turns out that many of us are, in fact, jerks. And true to form, we don't realize that we are. The truth, says my guest, is that absolutely anyone under the right circumstances can be a jerk. Why? Well, because we are reacting to others who are breaking a set of rules that we have created in our own minds. And others don't usually play by our rules, especially if they don't know what those rules are. 
As a result, we simply set others up to let us down, and by doing so, we rationalize our bad behavior towards them. We'll start talking about how not to be a jerk when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Bratt, and my guest for this part of today's show is Mark Borg, who's the author of Don't Be a Dick, Change Yourself, Change Your World. Mark, thanks for joining us. I'm really happy to be here. So you're just jumping right out there and getting in people's faces with a title like that. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, is at first, you know, it, it struck me as something that I myself needed to have put so thoroughly in my own face in order for me to kind of get a handle on any ways in which I might have been acting poorly toward other people that I kind of needed my own shock treatment to even get into this project. So I, I'm kind of offering it as a bit of a shock as a lead into the book, but really you know, it, it's far more gentle once you get inside. Yeah, and I think in in the service of gentleness, we're just going to refer to, to people who are expressing those kinds of uh, behaviors as jerks. Um, but yeah. g- give us a, a background a little bit of what a jerk is in your view and trying to get the listeners to, to have an open mind about this because part of your premise is that we ourselves in many cases are without even realizing it. Correct. I mean, that that really is, uh, I mean, that is the, a great start for how I define the jerk uh, some synonyms that have been used, uh, I think somewhat incorrectly, as narcissist, unless you really get deep into what narcissism actually is. Because narcissism, as it's really defined, especially in psychoanalytic terms, is a kind of a scar that's left over from very early mistreatment from the environment, usually caretakers. So the jerk, as I'm describing her or him, is a person who is acting out certain ways of being anxious or being insecure, feeling uncared for, unloved, in ways that are meant to call for attention, that are meant as a kind of protest against the way that they're feeling or the way that they've been actually treated, which wind up backfiring and then making them feel far worse. So my my whole book is really a plea for the person who's acting out this old, maybe even ancient, anxiety and insecurity in ways that are met with hostility to drop that weapon because the jerk behavior that I'm describing gets used as a kind of be- a weapon that winds up really hurting other people and then they counterattack and a life becomes very messy and, and painful and lonely. You're a practicing analyst and psychologist. Are, are you using the, the term in a clinical sort of way? or Because I think a lot of us would say, well, the guy who cuts us off in traffic or does some obnoxious thing or says some really unkind thing to, to something or, or you know, gets in your face over a parking space or just you know stiffs a waitress on a tiff or, or, or just treats somebody badly in public. People would say, what a jerk. But, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's something different between an acute explosion of jerkiness and somebody who's like that all the time. Well, 
there is absolutely a, a difference in how it's manifested, but the difference might be more in terms of chronicity versus being acute. You know, the, the examples that you gave, those might be examples of where the person maybe isn't a jerk. Maybe they're not a chronic jerk, but maybe something happened that day. Maybe something happened. Maybe I'm, I misperceived a slight coming from somebody else, and then I reacted. Maybe I'm displacing something from somewhere else. Maybe I woke up on the wrong side of the bed or didn't feel like I got respected as I walked out of the door for my wife and kids. You know, that, that is sort of the incidental jerk, but then there's the more chronic jerk, and, and, and that's the one I'm really trying to reach. I'm, and I'm trying to reach this person. I'm actually trying to reach that person in myself. You know, mm-hmm. I'm trying to get at what is it it puts us in this weird place where we are misperceiving counterattacks from other people as unprovoked attacks. I cut someone off in traffic, and they get really upset with me, and I think they're attacking me. I'm really convinced of that because the, the thing about acting out behavior is that it means behavior becomes a way of expressing feeling rather than me actually feeling the feeling. So mm-hmm. it's a way of acting where feeling bypasses awareness. And so I really, if I'm using this jerky behavior regularly and chronically as a, as a psychological defense, I honestly don't know that I'm doing it. And I really do think other people are just attacking me. Like the world is a really uh, unsafe and hostile place. I come to believe that if I'm this chronic jerk. It's a lonely, lonely way to live. Can you give us an example of a scenario that might play out that we so we could d- differentiate between the acute and the chronic. Okay, so <laughs> I'll give you I'll give you the example that starts this whole project. You know, I think sometimes we can be the chronic jerk in a in a particular relationship. We can be the jerk at a work in our in our work environment. We can be a, a, a jerk uh, in a particular relationship dynamic. And I, I was actually in a situation uh, several years ago where I've been working with a couple guys on, on another project. In fact, you and I talked about this other project last year, this ear relationship project. And I, I just started getting into my head that one of the other guys was acting like a jerk. I kept thinking he's not listening. He's railroading the project. He's tyrannizing the project. And I myself experienced a good period of time where I became the jerk. I became the chronic jerk. I was so so concerned about being taken advantage of. I was so concerned about, you know, being, uh, you know, somehow unheard or that not having my wishes kind of uh, met or my needs in the project that I started literally perceiving through that lens that one of the other guys, especially in this project, was a big jerk. And I didn't use that word. <laughs> you know, I used a, a much worse word. But it wasn't until I had this epic meltdown in public at a place where we used to meet that I finally, I, I just, I hit such a bottom. I said, oh, my God, this is what I'm talking about. I'm seeing it in everyone else. I'm actually seeing other people, you know, mistreating me. I'm calling them jerks. And that, I discover, is the ultimate kind of telltale sign that you're a jerk. You are seeing other people everywhere as jerks. That's the telltale sign. The chronic jerk thinks everybody mm. else is a jerk. In fact, I, I have a funny kind of thing about the book. I say, if you, if you want to know whether you should read this book, you're the person who thought that someone else needed it. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. All right, so get, take, take a, put, put on your, your therapist hat here for just a second and take us through a, okay. little, a little bit about 
what it is that got you and gets other people to that place. What what are you reacting to? I, again, I think it's this, it's this sense of insecurity. It's the same thing that I think goes on in, in the kind of behavior of what we call narcissists. And there's a reason why all of these major uh, blog sites like, uh, like Psychology Today, always if you look at Psychology Today, you find the top five, uh, in the f- top five most popular uh, blog entries are, you know, how to protect yourself from a narcissist, how to protect yourself from a sociopath. So I think what happens is, we get into this insecure place, and we don't feel safe enough to really reveal that to other people. So we're stuck in this place in our head. So rather than really dealing with things that are making us uncomfortable, like insecurity, we start to see things that we don't like in ourselves in other people. It's, it's called projection, and it's a very kind of primitive psychological defense mechanism. And what it means is I literally can't tolerate certain things about myself. But I have to deal with them, so what do I do? I project them onto you, and all of these things I'm reacting to in you are actually things about myself that I'm not owning. That's sort of the clinical, like sort of the mm-hmm. basic okay. operation of projection is to see things that I hate in me in you. Yeah, and you know, you know, the show is called Positive Parenting, and so we definitely need to be talking about some parenting issues here. And it mm. seems like there, there can be a lot of... I guess, opportunities for it to work both ways, where the parent can see a reflection of themselves in their child and they can behave badly as a parent, or the child can can act out and, and either direct it towards the parents or probably more frequently by bullying other kids uh, at school. Yeah. Oh, I think that's such a good point because, I, you know, I, I have a 12-year-old who, uh, you know, was just... Uh, Right up until about 11.375 years old, you know, this was the sweetest, kindest, lovingest. And at about that age, about maybe, you know, just rounding the bend toward 12, she just started shutting herself in her room, and she started putting on the headphones, and she started checking out. And I started looking at this with all this alarm until I started saying, oh, my gosh, wait a minute. This is what my mother said. This is what my mother says, you know, karmically speaking, you're, this is exactly who your child is going to be. Hmm. But I, maybe because I wrote this book and maybe because I'm a therapist and maybe because my wife is also a therapist to these couples, and all that said, that doesn't necessarily guarantee anything about how we're going to actually parent or live our lives. As a therapist, we still have to do the work ourselves. But I did, I felt so fortunate with my child that I could hear the voice of my mother telling me that this is what I could expect from my child. And I was able to empathize with my child rather than to project. I didn't like that 12-year-old version of me. I didn't like how I was so lonely. I was so unhappy. My father had left all of this. And so as my child was sort of dipping into this place, and she was sometimes acting kind of like a jerk, I was able to just to reach her through my own earlier experience. And I think that's this wonderful but oftentimes kind of painful opportunity that we parents have for our children is we can relate to them, not because we're shaking a finger and judging them and, oh, you're acting like such a jerk, but asking ourselves, when was it that I acted like that and Mm -hmm. why? Why was I acting like that? I wasn't acting like that because I was a big jerk. I was acting like that because I was scared or because I was hurt or because I was lonely. And in, in those feelings, we can reach our children talking with Mark Borg, who's the author of Don't Be a Dick, Change Yourself, Change Your World. We're going to take a quick break right now. When we come back, we will keep talking to Mark. 
It only takes a minute to find out if you may have prediabetes. And you can do it at doihaveprediabetes.org. But you're probably not going to, are you? Kids, work, listening to the radio. You're busy, which is great because busy people can't get prediabetes. Oh my, I read that wrong. <laughs> they can. Should have worn my glasses. So visit doihaveprediabetes.org and take a short test because prediabetes can be reversed. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, talking with Mark Borg, who's the author of Don't Be a Dick, Change Yourself, Change Your World. So we've identified, hopefully, a little bit about where our own behavior is coming from or where it may be coming from in other people that we, that we are seeing around us. And I, I guess the big thing, and what I want to spend this part of the show on, the, the remaining time that we have together, is what are we going to do about it? So we're probably not going to be able to change other people, or are we? No, I don't think that we directly change other people. I don't think we go after them with the jerkery that we see in them. In fact, I think that's probably the way to guarantee a counterattack. But I think what we do have when we are able to look at other people's behavior with compassion, like I was describing earlier about my daughter, what we have is we have this pause button that we can start to install in ourselves, and we can start to recognize that other people are acting poorly. If, if we're not in a totally impulsive, reactive state, we can hit pause, and we can give ourselves an opportunity to treat that jerk differently, even if that means it's not engaging, even if that means someone cuts me off on the freeway and I, I hit pause long enough to say, whoa, that person must be having a bad day. And, the, you know, so I have two rules for dealing with this kind of behavior, too. The first one is keep the focus on yourself. Mm -hmm. The second one is refer to rule one. It's that <laughs> important because so, we can't control other people's behavior, but we can control our overt reaction to other people's behavior. So we can hit pause. We can take a step back. We can call a moratorium on ourselves, and we can look at our part in that. We can look at our part in the other person's bad behavior, and oftentimes we might come up with a, uh, I didn't do anything to provoke this person, but I can tell you if that then my part becomes not feeding into the other person's jerky behavior because I'm telling you that a jerk is a person who's acting out insecurity or anxiety or some kind of unhappiness and is walking through the world with a constant invitation for other people to join them in your jerky behavior. There's a rule of thumb here, which is the kind of like there's no such thing as a single jerk. Jerks are always inviting other people. They're always so that the real, you know, 101 on this is do not feed the jerk. Do not feed them. Do not engage. Now, as you're talking, I'm wondering about this, and I guess I'm coming to this as a, as a non-psychologist, wondering whether there are external jerks and internal jerks, for lack of a better, a better way of looking at it. Is it that what we've been talking about so far is people who treat other people badly, mm -hmm. whether it's preemptively or not. But there probably are I'm guessing, a lot of jerks who direct their behavior at themselves and yes. are, are hostile to themselves and uh, yes. super critical and just never live up to their own expectations. And how, how does that differentiate and how does it play out in somebody's life? 
Okay, you, that to me is the million-dollar question, and that's who I really wrote this book for. I love the idea of the external jerk grabbing hold of this and taking a hard look, but it's the internal jerk who really suffers. It's the one who keeps taking this stuff on her or himself. It's the person who somehow or other won't give themselves a break. Really, the bottom line that I come to in my you know years of research on this behavior is that the, 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 the answer underneath all of this, underneath acting out all this insecurity and anxiety, is exactly what you're hinting at, which is self-acceptance. I'm not going to be able to stop being a jerk to other people. I'm not going to be able to be stop being a jerk to myself until I somehow am able to accept myself as I actually am. That's hard. That's really it's hard. Very hard. Yeah. It's hard, and it and it and I think it requires, you know, the care of other people. I think part of our acceptance of ourselves, since I believe we are thoroughly social creatures as human beings, so I believe that part of accepting ourselves also includes accepting what other people have to offer. It, it includes asking for help. It includes knowing something about what our needs are and taking the risk of asking other people to meet them for and with us. And how do you get, let's get back a little bit to the parenting side of things. How do you begin to deal with this? Say that you recognize, we'll, we'll get back to, to, to ourselves in just a minute, but say that you recognize mm-hmm. this in your child. And you're able to put some distance there and, and say that I, I really want to help my child. I see that he or she's acting out in a particular way, and it's causing an exodus of friendships or a lack of friendships altogether, and it's causing all sorts of other problems. How do you help a child make some changes? I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that's what we were talking about earlier. I think that helping that child is being willing to put ourselves in that child's experience. I think it's probably unlikely that any suffering that a child is going through, whether they're acting it out by bullying other kids, whether they're acting it out by getting bad grades or isolating themselves, there's hardly, I think, a feeling that drives that jerky behavior in a child that a parent couldn't somehow relate to if we allow ourselves. See, I think empathy is actually a really serious action that we take for people that we care about. Because empathy, in my definition, is literally allowing myself to go back to, say, a very painful moment in my life like I did you know, in my, when my kid was isolating herself, and, and get into that experience of my own so that when I talk to my child, I'm really there with her in empathy. And that, that starts to create a safe space that the child can at least start to articulate what's underneath the bad behavior. Because I don't think any child is going to take a frontal assault on this behavior. In fact, when my child started having difficulties last year, I noticed that she would never talk to me if I'd sit there at the dinner table or if I'd sit there at a restaurant, I'd be looking at her and I'd tell me what's going on. But what I started to realize, because I live in New York and we walk everywhere, and what I realized is if I started walking with my child, and just not looking directly at her, but just walking down the street, and just kind of started, you know, talking about some of the ways I relate to what she was going through. My child just started, you know, and really getting underneath the feelings that were driving her eh, questionable behavior. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. You know, I'll tell you something, I guess a self-revealing kind of a thing, but that I found very helpful that a therapist told me, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago, because I think I'm one of the the more internal jerky people and and treat myself Mm. badly. He said to me, interrupted me in the middle of my going on about something and said, if you saw on the street somebody treating another person the way that you treat yourself, you would stop them. And I, that for some reason, I, that just pops into my head every once in a while when I'm, I'm in a, a not a good space. And I think, you know, okay, just let's just back off and consider what's really going on here. And I, I think that, that kind of helps. Yeah. Oh, and I think that's, that's a really beautiful example because it's also, I think, an example of you being in a place where you could hear that said by someone that could say something like that. And 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 your willingness to take that in as as an as an expression of his care and his and his love for you. Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, I, I guess I didn't take it as care and love. I just I thought it was a an, an, an <laughs> okay, insightful okay. well an insightful <laughs> thing. But, <laughs> it, but your willingness to take it in. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, you're probably right. There probably was some professional care and love going on there. But it was, uh, it just was, you know, everybody has these little phrases that get stuck in their head that they come back to every once in a while. That, that's, that's one of mine. But so, and then as, as parents ourselves, what are we going to do to train ourselves to react differently? You know, again, I think once you allow yourself to hit pause, once you allow yourself to consider where thought and action go. You know, some people say that mental health is the pause between thought and action. If you give yourself a pause between your thought and action, it's a lot less difficult to actually have to answer that kind of a question because we're already modeling some kind of composure. We're already modeling some kind of behavior that allows us to actually listen to each other, to listen to our children, that that we're, you know, when we're in reaction, there's no way our child is going to hear a single thing that we had to say. All they can do when we're reacting is duck and cover. But if we hit pause and we allow ourselves to take a breath before we respond, even to terrible behavior, our child gets a sense that we're actually, rather than attacking them, we're opening up a space where we can deal with it. Now, we can't always do that immediately. In fact, my wife and I have a sort of a, uh, we have a, an agreement that if one of us is blowing our stack, the other one can kind of tap in. You know, that's, that's another strategy. But it's a strategy that allows us to, to, to have an alternative to modeling really uh, aggressive, reactive behavior uh, to or at our children. Mark Borg is the author of Don't Be a Dick, Change Yourself, Change Your World, and the book is available pretty much everywhere. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you. Thank you so much. I, I Really, really nice talking to you. Thanks for having me on. And a special shout-out to the folks at Navy Federal Credit Union for supporting today's show. They've been proudly serving the Armed Forces, Department of Defense, veterans, and their families for more than 80 years. Federally insured by NCUA. 
Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.